my name is Georgina Klee, and I'm, uh, I'm really very thrilled to be here and thrilled to be in a room full of people who share my interest in uh, making the visual arts accessible to people with uh, blindness and vision impairments. Um, uh, my talk today is titled The Subject at Hand, and uh, my apologies to the captioners and to uh, uh, deaf people in the audience. I, I didn't uh, know it was going to be captioned, so I didn't send my text in advance. So I'm going to just spell the, the uh, uh, first appearance of proper nouns as I come to them. Um, I, I uh, think it's important because a lot of the, the quotes that I'm reading are from blind people, and I think too often blind people's names get written out of uh, the text, so I wanted to make sure they were uh, available here. And also, since uh, many of them are not English names, uh, the spelling may be helpful to other people as well. The subject at hand. In 1760, Dennis Diderot, D-I-D-E-R-O-T, met a 17-year-old blind girl named Melanie de Salignac, S-A-L-I-G-N-A-C whom he pronounced to be the most surprising blind person who had ever existed. She was the cherished child of a family enlightened enough to care about her education and affluent enough to provide her with assistive technologies that were, in the century before Braille was introduced, well in advance of the times. For instance, she had an apparatus that allowed her to write and elaborate tactile maps made of fabric, wire, embroidery, and wax. Diderot marveled at her ability to judge the height of a person from the direction his voice came to her ear, and at, at her ease at guiding strangers around her home, pointing out low doorways and unexpected steps, tasks most adept blind people would find routine. To his credit, he even recorded her criticism of his famous Letter on the Blind, published in 1749. She objected to his claim that the blind must be less affected by the pain of others because they cannot see their afflictions, only hear their moans and cries. Or, as he put it, what difference can there be to a blind man between a man making water and one bleeding in silence? Uh-oh, indeed. <laughs> she asserted that on the contrary, she would feel the most pity for someone suffering in silence because she would know their pain would be all the greater. One day, Diderot proposed a thought experiment. He asked Mademoiselle de Salignac to imagine a cube, then to imagine a point at the very center of the cube with straight lines emanating from it to each of the cube's angles. She found this an easy operation, and before Diderot could pose his next question, announced that it would produce six equal pyramids whose bases were the same as the faces of the cube. But where do you see it, Diderot wanted to know. In my head, she replied, like you. <laughs> what impressed Diderot 
was not merely that Mademoiselle de Salignac could perform this mental geometry, but that she could do so without imagining the figures in color, since his own imagination depended on color to keep track of his calculations. For this reason, he would have been interested to read the recent memoir by Sabria Tenbergen, T-E-N-B-E-R-K-E-N, the young blind German woman who founded the first school for the, the blind in Tibet. Unlike Mademoiselle de Salignac, who became blind all at once at the age of three, Tenbergen's vision decreased gradually over the course of her childhood. While it was happening, she made a conscious effort to retain a memory of color, even to use color as a way to remember things by associating it, for instance, by associating certain colors with names, numbers, and days of the week. Early in her memoir, she describes a sightseeing trip she took upon first arriving in Tibet. Uh, she and her companions went to Lake Namso, and while the others snapped pictures and exclaimed over what they saw, she pictured the landscape this way, quote, a beach of crystallized salt shimmering like snow under an evening sun. Uh, at, the edge, at the edge of a large body of turquoise water. Further out, the Namso turns from turquoise to dark blue, then back to light blue as it melts uh, into the horizon. The setting sun was painting the surrounding mountaintops golden yellow, brown, and fire red. A recent downpour had frozen the mountaintops and their peaks were covered with white powder. And down below, on the deep green mountain flanks, a few nomads were watching their yaks graze. One of her companions looked up from his camera long enough to notice that she had her face turned in the wrong direction. What was before her eyes was nothing but barren rock. But while her friends always remember this anecdote as sad, she records it as proof that she has an imagination. But where is that imagination, we hear Diderot ask. In my head, she would reply, like you. <laughs> of course, Tenbergen's description is a construction of words, a collection of adjectives culled from the exclamations of her sighted companions and from written accounts she'd read before leaving home. Still, like Diderot, the colors she names link to colors in her memory that she uses to create a detailed mental image that she finds meaningful and satisfying. Diderot's perplexity over Mademoiselle de Salignac's colorless imagination led him to speculate that in asking her where she saw the cube, he was posing the wrong question. It might be better, he pondered, instead to ask her where she felt it, to speak in terms of a mind's hand rather than a mind's eye. 
Diderot would have been further enlightened if he had met Dr. Henry Moyes, M-O-Y-E-S. Born in Scotland in 1750, he eventually settled in Manchester, where he lectured on the natural sciences at the Manchester Philosophical Society. He traveled widely, including to America, where he once gave a lecture at Columbia College on optics, a topic many of his audience found a surprising choice for a man who had been blind since the age of three. A contemporary account records that, quote, it must be noted that this gentleman's eyes were not totally insensible to, to intense light. Rays refracted through a prison if sufficiently vivid uh, produced certain distinguishable effects on them. The red gave him a disagreeable sensation that he compared to the touch of a saw. As the colors declined in violence, this harshness decreased until the green gave him, gave him a highly pleasing sensation that he described as conveying an idea similar to what he felt running his hand over polished surfaces. Polished surfaces, meandering streams, and gentle declivities gave him the figures uh, by which to express his idea of beauty. Rugged rock, irregular points, and boisterous elements furnished him with his expressions for terror and disgust." End quote. Thus, Dr. Moyes processed his residual color perception through his mind's hand to create a, a system of meaningful analogous sensations, a sort of spectrum of texture. Diderot's understanding of mental imaging would have been further enriched if he could have met Gerard Vermeige. M-V-E-R-M-E-I-J, professor of geology at the University of California at Davis, who has been totally blind since early childhood. Here he describes his tactile examination of a group of Asian clams, which though visually identical, actually belong to two different species. Uh, quoting Vermeige. The pads of my fingers traced the outlines of the shells, probed the growth lines for their sharpness and spacing, uh, noted how deeply cupped the valves were, and gathered a dozen other details. With my nails, I observed the precise shape of the growth lines. Were the lines sharp or flattened, reflected or erect? Uh, widely spaced or close together, and so on. I repeated these uh, operations quite unconsciously with each shell. I picked up the, sh the valves again and again, comparing, contrasting, and forming hypotheses in my mind, which I put to the test with, a different, with additional observations. I had to determine which features were meaningless variations and which might denote characteristics that would distinguish one species from another. Vermeer 
distinguished one species from another, an identification that had only been done previously through DNA testing. And while the questions he asked as he made his, uh, his examination were scientific rather than artistic, I would wager that he could examine any art object in this or any other museum and observe details that would astound experts. He would be the first to admit that this, his uh, tactile skills were not supernatural compensatory powers, but rather uh, techniques that he had developed and perfected over a lifetime as a working scientist. I suspect that the idea of a blind conchologist would have made Diderot's head spin. But he had an imagination sufficiently encyclopedic to encompass much that was in advance of his time. And unlike earlier thinkers who had speculated on blindness, Diderot was willing to interview actual blind people rather than merely the hypothetical blind men that had been the subject of contemplation before him. Actual blind people, like Mademoiselle de Salignac, were more complex and multidimensional, and so challenged all his expectations. For instance, she told him that if he drew a picture of an object or a face in the palm of her hand, she would be able to identify it without hesitation if the drawing was well done. <laughs> Perhaps her final word of caution made him reluctant to perform the experiment. <laughs> he knew a great deal about art and was, at the time he knew Mademoiselle de Salignac, preparing to write his review, his uh, uh, Salon reviews, what many considered to be foundational works in art criticism but he was not himself a visual artist. Could he allow for the possibility of a visual artist who was blind? If I could, I would describe for Diderot the work of one such artist, Alice Wingwall. The work I have in mind, <laughs> the work I have in mind is titled Hand over dog, Joseph at the Temple of Dendur. It is one of a series of photographs that Wingwall produced during the final phases of her sight loss due to retinitis pigmentosa. It is a photograph of the Temple of Dendur here at, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped a line. Uh, she took her new service dog, Joseph, to favorite architectural sites around the world. Uh, Handover Dog is a photograph of the Temple of Dendor here at the Met, pictured from the front. In the middle ground of the image, museum vi visitors stand looking at the temple or walk to and fro. In the foreground, Joseph, a handsome yellow Labrador, is pictured in profile. Above the dog's head, at the approximate center of the picture plane, the artist's hand points toward the temple as if directing the viewer's gaze. But Joseph is looking somewhat longingly toward the window. 
Perhaps his attention was attracted by some urban wildlife, a squirrel or a pigeon, or perhaps it is just the longing look of a service dog who needs a break. In either case, the image as a whole represents a complex of ideas about looking and seeing, about showing and meaning. It makes a powerful statement about the role of the artist to organize and direct the viewer's gaze, while it humorously debunks the popular myth that it is the service dog who does the seeing for the blind person. In point of fact, I cannot say for certain if Joseph's look is one of longing. I base my description on what I know about dogs in general and what I know from friends who use service dogs and report that the stop and go pace of a museum visit can be especially trying for them. This is not the fault of the dogs, of course. It is due to an oversight on the part of the training schools who in imagining all the situations and locations where blind person and dog may find themselves, fail to picture them in art museums. <laughs> to be even more precise, my, des my description of this image is based primarily on hearsay, what I have heard and read about it, rather than on direct visual experience. I have been legally blind since the age of 11, and my residual vision allows me to see photographs only if the colors are highly saturated and the uh, forms and composition are extremely simple. This image was a part of the Blind at the Museum exhibit at the Berkeley Art Museum that I helped to organize last spring. I did not pick the artwork. artwork. I left that to my sighted colleagues Catherine Sherwood, the, that's S-H-E-R-W-O-O-D, uh, the painter and art professor at Berkeley, and Elizabeth Duncan, D-U-N-G-A-N, uh, the art historian. But I did conduct tours of the exhibit for both family and friends and the general public. I based my descriptions on what my colleagues had told me and from comments by the artists themselves, uh, the majority of whom were blind and uh, visually impaired. Um, each new tour group had questions and comments that gave me additional observations for the next tour. I could even strike convincing docent poses in front of the images, <laughs> pointing out specific details, even though my perception of these was sketchy at best. Uh, in describing this image here, I do not expect that anyone hearing it will necessarily picture it in his or her mind's eye. Perhaps with a little more effort, I could make you want to see it. Again, we hear poor Diderot, his head reeling with all this new terminology, blind artist, blind docent, service dogs, photography, sputter and ask, but where is this image, where this desire? In our heads, we'd reply, like you. Uh, this, might, be, this not, might not be accurate for all of us. I believe that Alice Wingwall, like other blind artists I know, actually does picture this image in her mind eye. 
Her visual memory and skills perfected over many decades as a sighted artist and art viewer allow her to create detailed mental images that she can communicate to sighted assistants who help her aim her camera. My own mind's eye is not as, uh, is not as acute and reliable. When I try to summon an image from my early childhood when my vision was presumed to be close to normal, the results have the same uh, distortions and lack of detail as my vision today. My description of uh, Wingwall's image uh, does not draw a picture, uh, does not draw a mental image for me. Rather, it creates a sensation in my mind's body I could lead a tour from here to the Temple of Dendor, stand where Wingwall stood, borrow someone's service dog and persuade it to pose correctly, distribute the correct number of visitors around the space, shout, hold it, and create a sort of live reenactment of the image, a tableau vivant of the way my words make me feel. Although I still retain color perception, Sabria Tenberken's description of Lake Namso does nothing for my mind's eye. Her words, which link colors to temperatures, crystallized turquoise blue melting in contrast with the fiery reds and oranges of the sunsets of the sunset, creates a sensation in my, uh, puts me in mind of a blue popsicle a sensation in my mind's mouth, a taste and color not found in nature. I assemble this collection of blind people from the past and the present with their various experiences, uh, backgrounds, and professional interests to make a point about blind authority and expertise. Blindness is too often understood as merely a lack, an absence, a deficit. To experienced blind people, blindness can be a different way of perceiving the world, a different way of using the senses in different proportions and combinations. As we explore ways to make museums more accessible to people with visual impairments, we need to enlist the aid of blind artists, blind writers, blind scientists, and blind educators who can share their knowledge and articulate their mental processes. When I talk to groups such as this, I'm always tempted to point out that the blind and visually impaired museum visitors of, of the future are people who are currently sighted. Many have made careers in the arts and arts education and have a vast repertoire of visual memories and knowledge about art and perception. So then the question becomes not what I and other currently blind people would want in terms of accommodation, but what they, the currently sighted, what accommodations they, the currently sighted, would find meaningful and helpful. <coughs> When I pose the question this way, however, I feel my audience start to squirm and fidget and lean toward the towards the door, 
It's as if I am wishing them ill, casting an evil spell, threatening their very eyeballs with some sharp instrument. <laughs> it is easier to infantilize and exoticize the blind, to imagine us always as children in need of cultural enrichment, or else as belonging to a tribe so remote and primitive to have no tradition of picture making. In a sense, I am here to repeat two slogans of the disability rights movement, nothing about us without us, and disability is the one minority that anyone can join. We must enlist the aid of blind people to serve, not only to serve in focus groups evaluating new programs, but to challenge the very assumptions that create those programs. At the same time, we need to remember that blindness can occur to anyone from any, uh, from any profession at any time. Whether totally blind since birth or visually impaired later in life, we are not talking about an alien species who cannot understand our language and values. There are those who will dismiss what we do here as trivial and frivolous when we remember that the vast majority of blind Americans are undereducated and unemployed. Only about 45% of students with severe vision impairments and blindness graduate from high school compared with 80% of their sighted peers. Unemployment among working age blind Americans still hovers around 70%. There are people who tell me that my efforts would be better spent trying to improve these disturbing statistics. But I believe, and for once I can assume I am among others who share this belief, that art is more than mere entertainment, something to do with, someone's with, some, with leisure time. I believe that art in all its form is basic to what makes us human. Furthermore, I love museums and have spent many of my best hours in museums. In particular, I love this museum. I am a native New Yorker, and like many New York City uh, school children, I came to the Met at least once a year on school trips. I also visited with my parents, who were both visual artists, who came here and to the other great New York museums seeking knowledge and inspiration. One of my earliest work, uh, works of fiction, written when I was about nine, is a fantasy about being locked in the Met overnight when all the sculptures and suits of armor came to life to stroll the great galleries and look at all the pictures. I believe that anything that can be done to make this and other museums more accessible to the blind and the sighted, to adults and children, is a goal worth working for. Let me conclude by imagining then a tour of this museum including all the blind people I have mentioned and Dennis Diderot. <laughs> Diderot would be a good choice as a docent 
since most of his art criticism was written for people who could not see the works he was describing and had no photos or other reproductions to consult. His texts, many of which were, that were written from memory, combined detailed descriptions with rants against the artists, often imagining better versions of the same subject that were usually compilations of other works. But in the tour, I, oh, I'm sorry, skipped a line again. Uh, sometimes he abandoned description altogether and made up narratives to explain the images. He made no pretense that his descriptions were objective, but his enthusiasm is infectious and, th and thus worth listening to. But in the tour, I'm imagining his blind companions would not be content to listen passively to his pronouncements. We would want to question his values and technical terminology and share our own impressions and expertise. Henry Moyes and Sabria Tenbrooken would lend texture and temperature to any discussion of color. Alice Wingwall would put a new spin on linear description, on linear, uh, linear perspective. And Gerard Vermeige would direct our tactile exploration of sculpture. Meanwhile, Mademoiselle de Salignac would draw cubes and pyramids in the palm of Diderot's hand, patiently repeating, can you feel that? Do you see what I mean? Not just there in your hand, Monsieur Diderot, but in your head, like me. <laughs>